Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And welcome in, welcome in to another episode of the In The Shift podcast, episode number 56. And uh, we are continuing um, what began last time is, and what is turning out to be a series of conversations with my friend Shane Meyer Holt. Uh, and so if you haven't listened to the last episode, you might find that helpful in terms of providing a bit of context and a bit of background both to us and also to why we're talking about what we're talking about at the moment, which is really related to uh, megachurches and and churches that aspire to be megachurches. Uh, and, and, and not just because we've decided that's a fun thing to talk about, uh, but because of the, you know, the, the, the numerous quite harrowing stories coming out at the moment about uh, people within megachurch systems, um, especially here in Australasia, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but there are implications, I think, for global church culture in the West in particular, and especially in Pentecostal and evangelical um, church growth and megachurch spaces. So we're trying to process some of what we're hearing, process some of what our own experiences were in the past, and hopefully in the process make some sense of it for those of you who are also uh, listening along and trying to make sense of your own experience. Maybe it's just for some solidarity. Maybe you're someone who's you know, still deep inside some of those church spaces and, and trying to figure out how you feel and what you think about it. Uh, maybe you're on the edge and you've got big questions and you don't know if that's okay or not. Maybe you're you're long gone from those church spaces but still trying to process what happened there. Uh, or maybe you're just someone who's who's totally outside going, what the hell is going on in there? <laughs> here? Um, and so really sort of wherever you're coming at this conversation from, our hope is that it is um, it opens up more space uh, for us to talk about these things that deeply matter and that we cannot ignore, uh, even when they are difficult to talk about. Uh, so um, in this conversation in particular, we, we talk, uh, you know, we begin with some reflections um, on some of the stories that have come out recently and our responses to those. Uh, but we also talk a lot about coercion in this episode and the way in which that functions um, both explicitly and implicitly, you know, in those really obvious ways and then, and then in the much more insidious and subtle ways. We talk about the culture of fear and, um, and of pressure, about charisma and about ego. Uh, and then we have uh, quite a conversation towards the end about honor culture and the way in which this drives so much of the, uh, the problematic behavior uh, and thinking that we see woven throughout many of these institutions. So uh, that's what we talk about here. Um, as I said last time, if you're wanting to uh, get in touch with Shane and I, you can do so through um, email, feedback at intheshift.com, uh, because we'd love to hear from you. And if you've got just, just a story or a comment or maybe a question or maybe a suggestion of things that need to be talked about, or you just want to process out loud somehow, um, or you want to just um, say hi, whatever it might be. Uh, you can get in touch and you can also do so through the various social media things as per usual. You can find In The Shift on Facebook and Instagram and that kind of thing. There's a website, intheshift.com. If you even want to go there, you're more than welcome. We um, just hope it creates some space for the conversations that need to happen. So this is episode 56 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Um, so we're back with Shane and I for another conversation. Um, things have obviously escalated because Shane's drinking. 
Uh, hi, Shane. Some, sometimes these things are a necessity for particular conversations. It's true. Hello, uh, Michael. You doing all right over there? Uh, yep. Yep. Look, Melbourne I'm. Uh, it's it's oh, late. Okay. It's quite late at night here, so I'm in a. I'm in my dressing gown. And, you are uh, too. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. <laughs> That's a little Hugh Hefner, isn't it? You're, you're looking fine. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, hey, so we're gonna we're gonna keep talking uh, about what we started last time, and um, and perhaps uh, one one place to kick off our convo today is to think about this idea, and it's one that's in the conversation a lot, is, and and I've noticed this in the conversation a lot around, say, the Arise Church stuff that's been happening recently, but also uh, around the Hillsong um, stuff that was coming to light uh, over the last period of time as well, which is for people within these systems in particular to see what's happening as an attack on the church um, that needs to be defended. And... um, and not only actually does that happen from people within the, the particular churches themselves, but many mm. people within the wider church networks see this as something like we've kind of got to band together and defend the church against this this external attack. So let's let's start there and what's going on there and how you'd respond to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've seen this come up and have had it come up in a few conversations of kind of like you know even even this idea of the kind of like the spectrum of you know like the the people who are you know uh you know all on board and and def- defending the church and then the people who are asking curious questions you know in the middle somewhere and then David Farrier down the other end who's you know who's got an agenda and uh and I'd agree I think David Farrier does have an agenda but I don't think it's to uh, single-handedly tear apart the entirety of the Christian faith, uh, given that, you know, he's got a background in this stuff and uh, from what I've read and from um, hearing him talk has quite a bit of compassion and sympathy towards these things and has some friends who are people of faith that he um, allows to contribute to his Webburn blog and things like that. I think that uh, David Farrier probably sits a lot closer to uh, where I would sit in that this isn't an attack on the church, it's an attack on bullies. Um, and it's in defense of people who have been abused and victims. And so I would regard this whole kerfuffle uh, as, I don't, sorry to use such strong language this early <laughs> yeah, on, easy. I am easy, one Shane. beer down. Uh, <laughs> this whole kerfuffle, I, I, I would view it as a defense of the church um, in that, where uh, the vulnerable and where victims have been taken advantage of, um, and especially in the name of God, uh, that that should be called out and that should be named. And that this, um, you know, if we really do believe that the truth should set you free, uh, we shouldn't be signing, getting people to sign NDAs for, st- for starters, um, but we should also, also, also believe that we... Um, should be able to talk about our behavior in public forums and not have the rest of the world go, oh, that sounds a lot like an abusive relationship. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I, I I don't think this is an attack on the church. I think this is a defense of victims and there's a big difference between those two things. Yeah, and in many respects, as I think about this, um, you know, having, I guess, worked through my own faith journey on the other side of my experiences of this, coming to realize that actually the Christian tradition 
has a victim of abuse and violence at the very center of it. Like, mm. the, the, you know, yep. Jesus stands as, as kind of a victim in solidarity with all victims. Mm. Um, and the idea that we would be somehow defending an institution... Um, under, under any name, <laughs> let alone God's. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just, it's just not, um, to me, coherent with the way in which I understand um, mm. the Jesus story at all. Mm. Uh, and in fact, often... I think we might have talked about this last time, but layers on the trauma because the defense of the church doesn't just come in these external kind of pushbacks, but actually the defense of the church is the justification for the NDA. The defense mm-hmm. of the church is the justification for the cover-up of that sexual assault story or the, you know, because we don't want to damage the reputation of the church because mm-hmm. ultimately that's, you know, then going to damage God's ability to work in the world. So mm-hmm. so that idea that we should be defending the church by... Um, by defending bullies and scapegoating yeah. victims is just yeah. abhorrent to me. Yeah, anyway. but it tells a lot. It tells a lot about what um what you think God is doing in the world, isn't doesn't mm. it? Because mm. if you think that what God is that the 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 main thing that God is doing is building churches and making churches bigger and bigger, um then that, then that logic holds true. But if you think the main thing that God is doing in the world is um you know trying to help everyone know that they are the beloved, that um, God is standing up for the powerless and for victims, that God is the one who is defending and participating, uh, you know, defending the victims and and participating in acts of justice so that the, the, the strong don't overcome the weak, then that tells you which, which side you should be on. Mm. Yes. So, so all of that to say that that um, yeah, that that sort of defend the church versus an attack on the church narrative just I think doesn't hold up. So um, uh, that's helpful to maybe to just address um <laughs> up front. Um, I wanted to reflect uh, just before maybe we dive into a few other ideas that we want to toss around here. Um, but there was a story um on Webworm on David Ferrier's newsletter this week um, by someone named Rachel um, recounting sort of very articulately and 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 kind of poignantly and with real insight um, into their experience at Arise, which I think um, was able to put into words for many people, not just at Arise, but in many churches and systems that follow that kind of model, uh, put into words uh, something of what maybe they had experienced in various forms or, or whatever. So what did, what did you kind of notice from that story or what stood out to you from that? Uh, for starters, she's an excellent writer and I kind of feel like this podcast is a little superfluous <laughs> considering she's done uh, such great work on, um, yeah, unlocking the mechanics of how uh, communities like that work. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciated the uh, the stuff around unity uh, and how uni- unity can be... Um, essentially unity can become a hammer uh, for Mm. uniformity and can drive out diversity and bring homogeneity. I thought that was just a really, yeah, a really really helpful point for everyone who's been in a bigger system and felt like they didn't belong. Um, That's actually quite intentional because difference is is scary uh, in pragmatic institutions. And, and, 
you know, mega churches, uh, because they have really clear goals and really um, a really defined sense of what they are there to, to do, which, you know, can be dressed up in lots of different languages. It can be, you know, win the world, you know, change the world, make a difference, save souls. And all of those things, like, uh, depending on how you define them all, can all be really healthy and positive things. But what they can do is be used as, we talked about in the last podcast as a justification for whatever means to the end, to an end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the one, one of those tools is essentially to drive out any diversity and difference because it's just not that pragmatic. It's, it's not easy to deal with um, different kinds of people. It's not easy to deal with different opinions. It's not easy to deal with questions about, um, about God or about the way, you know, um, the ch- the church is operating and functioning. That all just slows the machine down. And uniformity is a much is, is much much easier. And so it's much easier. Much more to, efficient, right? Yeah. It's much more efficient. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's pragmatic. So I thought her stuff around mm. that, um, which will lead into some conversations we'll have about <laughs> the way fear is used and the mm. way honor is mm. used. Um, both of those are tools to essentially make sure that. Uh, there's as there's little resistance to the end goal as possible. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's just strange being in an, <laughs> an institution which, uh, you know, Jesus was profoundly unpragmatic, <laughs> the, wor- the, the worst uh, at getting everybody on board and keeping everyone happy at the same time. <laughs> Jesus had not read enough are. church growth books. Um, yes, certainly. He has zero of the seven keys um, to being a powerful <laughs> dictator. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I was just thinking back as you were talking um, to some leadership talks I heard back in the day. You might have heard a version of these too. Um, for those who may not know, there's a couple of there's a number of kind of events and symbols that are used in in, in the biblical story to represent different things. And in the Old Testament, there's there's two uh, that stand out as as representing uniformity that crushes diversity. And one is the Tower mm-hmm. of Babel, which is a story quite mm-hmm. early on in Genesis. Um, where they all speak one language, and and you know, I won't go into the details of the story, but essentially, it's about it's about uniformity that that um, mm. that leads to um, things that are unhealthy. Let's say that, and then later, uh, there's a story of Babylon, which is an empire again, which crushes dissent. And I remember sitting in, lead- in a leadership uh, seminar once in a, in a church conference, and and the leadership talk specifically used the Tower of Babel and the image of Babylon as good examples <laughs> of how to lead effectively. <laughs> they were like, even though they were leading people in the wrong direction, their leadership <laughs> strategies were actually very impressive and we can all learn a lot from that. Um, and, and that says a lot, you know, um, that, they, that they, look at those, they look at all of the stories in Scripture and, 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 and they are particularly drawn to the ones where, where um, uniformity is enforced with yeah. violence, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to, to me in the story, I think it was really interesting, um, like personally at an existential level in some ways, to to read um, the account this week as, as well as some of the others, because in some sense it was like reading my own story again, but with more objectivity. Uh, you're often so close mm. to your own story, and you've justified mm. so many things in your lives, and even even when you've processed stuff, and even when you've worked through it, you also kind of understand the backstories and you 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 give people outs and you you make excuses for people yeah uh, and as I was reading I think actually it was the other week um, or a couple a week or two ago um, when 
a part of Rachel's story related to um, being given a diet shake program uh, by the pastor mm. uh, so that she could look the part a little more. And it made me think about an experience I had kind of with new eyes again. I, I, it made me think quite viscerally of a time when I was taken out for, um, and I'm, you know, someone who, who um, look, I've, I've, I've dealt in my life with various body image issues at different times um, and still kind of navigate that and have, you know, paid my therapist plenty of money for that conversation. And, uh, and thinking back to this moment where I was taken out for coffee by uh, one of the, one of the um, senior leaders in the, in the church and, uh, and they took me out. I remember we'd done coffee and then we got into the car to leave and then they turned to me and they said, I've got a gift for you. And I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and they gave it to me and it, oh, was a, and it was a book called Body for Life and it was all about mm. working out. And they said, um, I know you want to talk, you know, to be able to share your thoughts with people, but no one will ever listen to what a fat person has to say. Mm. And so if you want people to ever listen to you, you need to stop being fat. He said, I went to a meeting the other day and a guy got up to talk and he was fat. And I thought, why should I listen to anything you have to say? You're fat. So don't be fat. Here's a book. Go get fit. Um, and, and in, you know, I kind of, that's just one story that I guess I just absorbed into my narrative and mm. sort of generally dealt with. But as I was reading, you know, other people's accounts that, that in some ways mirror it, it gave me some ob objectivity to my own experience, you know, to go back and say, mm. oh, mm. that was actually pretty awful, wasn't it? And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting, even as someone who's processed this for, for many years now, are finding, finding that as the kind of the cone of silence lifts, so to speak, um, yeah. we're actually able to see um, solidarity in each other's stories uh, in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's something I've and just look, been this, that's, about. And that's part of this process, isn't it? Because when, you know, <laughs> when you're in any kind of family system, um, that becomes some kind of like emotional lifeline to you. There's this, you know, natural thing that happens where you justify the behavior of the thing that is keeping you safe um, because mm. it's the thing that keeps it attached to you. Mm. Um, they, a long time ago, <laughs> did experiments on, on on rats and put like a little electric zappy vest uh, on the mama rat and and um, and and just to see what would, what the babies would do and and. It didn't affect the bond of the baby rat to the mummy rat at all, even though the mummy rat was zapping, you know, effectively zapping the baby rats. They they would still um, draw, draw close and still create that bond because it's a survival mechanism mm. of the things that are keeping you safe. You just you just have to you just have to overcome the barbs that come. Uh, and you know, there's psychologists out there who would be able to speak to this a lot more clearly than me but there there is a sense in which part of the deconstruction process is is going what was it that i justified internally and what was it that i narrated as being okay because i really i really wanted to be bonded to that system it was the thing that was giving me life and keeping me safe or so i thought uh that on the other side of that yeah these stories come up and um <laughs> the only reason i'm not swearing uh at the story is because i've heard it before and i think i swore a lot the first time you told me <laughs> you told me this so you know i'll save i'll save you the explicit po uh, tag on your podcast this time but yeah that that still makes me incredibly angry that story 
Yes. Me also, actually, in a renewed way this week. Um, and, you know, you know me, Shane. It takes a bit for me to feel angry, so... <laughs> it really does. I, I might become so the, angry the that I among us. go and... Um, Scream into your pillow. Quiet, <laughs> oh, no, but that's not a too bit, loud. That's a bit much. you wake anyone that's else. That's a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and uh, do a very mean face at the window. Um, <laughs> You'll pull the fingers, but cover it. With your hand. <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, okay, so so um, so let's talk a little bit about about explicit versus implicit coercion. Like a lot of the uh, coercion is a word that's come up a lot in in these stories, and because we understand that it's not just what people are doing, but it's the tactics that are used to essentially mm-hmm. get them mm-hmm. to continue doing that to their own detriment, um, and. And if we think about these ideas of explicit and implicit coercion, um, this idea that there are much more obvious things that are sometimes done, um, but that you can kind of point at and say, look at that. But there's all these things under the surface as well that might be uh, more subtle, but perhaps more effective. Yeah, or, or yeah, or at least even create a, f- a framework for those explicit things to to operate within. I, I was just thinking this week about the kind of uh, with a rise in the uh, independent inquiry that's been run, and just thinking about the kind of the the, the way in which these stories, uh, which go to the inquiry, will be narrated, and that there will be specific moments that will be pointed out. Um, you know, some of the kind of horror stories that are coming out of, you know, people being grabbed and people being yelled at and people being belittled and demeaned and, and all these kind of things. And and they'll make, you know, they'll, they'll obviously become um, easy, easy hooks um, and, and easy stories to be told. Um, sorry, not easy at all, very difficult stories to be told, but they'll be the things that are, are quite likely to be addressed. But having kind of witnessed these stories from the inside and the out, the reality is, is that it takes, um, you know, an entire system to allow these, th- these things to happen, but also to build a framework in which um, this stuff is kind of incubated. Uh, it It doesn't just take a bunch of people who are yelling at people and who are particularly malicious it also takes a bunch of people who don't feel empowered to stop those things happening. Um, it takes a bunch of people who will reinforce and validate um, the kind of echoes of that stuff. So if if fear is delivered by um, really obvious things like you know like like being berated or belittled or humiliated or uh, any of those things, fear is also um, sent out by the threat of being cut off or the threat of um, missing out on, on an opportunity. And it doesn't take uh, outrageously confident people who are drunk on power to perpetuate those quieter shadow sides of a toxic environment. But those two things together, the explicit um, coercion and the implicit coercion, together make up a system that stays that keeps people there um, and keeps people in line, but also that echoes and stays with people for a long time. I've been thinking about the fact that you still have nightmares mm. um, about about your experience. And that's, 
a lot of therapy on and a long, many years down the road. And I know, you know, you're a wise and, you know, emotionally intelligent human and you don't sit under any of that power anymore, but it still stays with you. And I was thinking about what does it take for a church to be a place where it's easier to move cities than to tell people that you've got a few issues with it. Mm. And everyone knows the stuff who's within the system or close enough to the center, but not all of those people are the people that are being yelled at. There's a much more insidious um, use of fear going on than just the stories that will make the headlines. And it's not just the people who will make the headlines who participate in making that fear seem legitimate and doing God's work, i.e. keeping people in the church. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because we talked a little bit last time about sort of at what point does something cross over to become something bad versus something good, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that people have uh, shared with me since uh, the last episode went out, our last chat, um, is is kind of talking to they've, – they've been talking to people they know who are pastors or church leaders and in other churches saying, oh, well, we'd, we're not – either we're not a mega church or we haven't done those really extreme things, so we're fine. Yeah. Um, and the people contacting me being like, but it's not fine, you know. Uh, no. that those that those more insidious and more more subtle um, forms of of control and manipulation and coercion mm. and and fear um, mm. function a lot in religious spaces. Um, yeah, and you know we'll probably go on. I think maybe in, maybe in another conversation to talk a bit more about some of the beliefs that sit underneath yeah. <laughs> this because yeah. I think that's important to get to. Like we can talk about all the stuff that's happening, but what are the kind of what are these what are the core beliefs that sit under this that manifest themselves then in these in the building of these systems that justify mm. the building of these systems. Mm. Um, because that can take shape in all sorts of different ways. And it can yes. justify all kinds of things. Yes. When I'm yeah. when I'm just just you know trying to save you from eternal conscious torment for all of eternity, uh, you know, you can you can get away with a lot. Yeah. Well, exactly. I was having a conversation with someone today about that very thing. It's like when, mm. if, if what's on the line is someone suffering forever in hell, which mm. is look, a ridiculous concept. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can pretty much justify anything, anything in order to yep. save someone from that. And yep. so that's a conversation we need to have perhaps. Yep. Um, yeah, thinking about like the the um, the implicit um, ways of enforcing fear. You were talking about, you know, the threat of what could be taken away from you, for example. Even mm. that threat mm. itself is often not direct. So you don't. Yep. Uh, it doesn't have to be someone standing in front of you saying, "I'm going to take away your community and everything you belong to." All you have yeah. to do is stand up in front and tell a story about somebody else who questioned or left, yep. and yep. how they're now out. Yeah, that's because right. they lost their way, or yeah. they lost the plot, or they unraveled, or yeah, um, and to talk about them in disparaging ways, mm. um, and, and disappointed. Then you hear that disappointed by his also Dis- very disappointed. I'm not mad. I'm oh, just disappointed. They could have, yeah. yeah, and even worse if they something. had potential, and they quit yeah. just before yeah. <laughs> you know their breakthrough or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and you hear those stories, and you're like, oh, okay. You kind of know, and even when you don't consciously know, you subconsciously mm. know that mm. 
Um, and I remember saying to people, actually, for the last probably six months that I was uh, at that church. <laughs> um, Don't kind of say that out Like Voldemort. Yes. Um, <laughs> I... Um, that I would say to people, I don't want to be one of those people who, oh, this was actually yeah. when I was coming off staff before we actually left the church and I kept yeah. saying to people, I don't want to be one of those people who, who, oh. um, you know, who, who is seen and talked about in these ways. I'm going to be still, yeah. a, you know, I was, I was yeah. so gripped with that idea of not wanting want to be, to the, be the one, one of those people yeah. um, mm. that it, that it controls your actions and, and, and what you're able to actually name and say mm. and, and identify. But because your your story is narrated for you, right? Mm. You're not leaving because you're stuck in an abusive system where people are taking advantage of you and that in ways that don't represent the Jesus that you know and love. Mm. No, your story is narrated for you. You're leaving because you got bitter, mm. because, you know, you're falling away, because, you know, you just didn't have, you know, what you you know what you didn't you didn't have what it took to make it or you gave up before your breakthrough like you like um one, you let one of the offense ways of, build oh, a fence in your heart build a fence and can i just say sometimes you cannot build a fence high enough between <laughs> an abuser and yourself yes. there should be a fence fences aren't always bad <laughs> yeah but but when your story is, is narrated for you that you know that doesn't really matter what you think. Everyone that you know and care about, and you know the way some of these churches become all of people's lives. It literally becomes everyone that you care about. Mm, yeah. Um, when you know what they will be thinking before you make your move, it locks you in. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking about. <laughs> funnily enough, I was just thinking about the, the the idea of kind of abusers and reinforcers and. Um, I say this, I guess I say this carefully for, you know, but both of us, but potentially more you have kind of placed, played this role, um, where you've kind of got the kind, the kind people who people trust, um, in a system that, that, that end up kind of rationalizing, uh, and particular behavior within a system um and you might you might want to edit this out <laughs> like <laughs> we'll see where this goes but um that sometimes it's the people who reinforce the system rather than the people who actually are the kind of primary abusers um that keep keep people there longer like within every institution, there's these kind of nice people who kind of go, well, they didn't really mean that. And, you know, sometimes they just get so excited and passionate that they say things they probably shouldn't or even just playing that role of going, that person, they're still there and they're really nice. Like that, they've seen all this and they're still here and I know that they love God, so it must be okay. And, yeah, it's, it's just interesting that, like, that role that people who may internally even have huge questions and huge doubts or all of their own stuff on the line. Um, and look, it's particularly complicated with staff and particularly within Pentecostal systems. So for those who are outside, outside of the system, um, most pastors in most church ministry positions have done a few years of theological training um, have gone through some longer discernment process. Uh, 
uh, have a bunch of other key skills um, that are recognized that they could work in all kinds of places within their system. A lot of people who are on staff end up stuck partly because they have a lot of experience within this kind of church, but because they don't have any theological credentials or anything um, on paper that kind of backs them up, they can only work within systems like this. But if you get fired from a system like this or if you leave one, there's a good chance you get blacklisted. (laughs) Mm. And so you actually end up with no options. So your option is 20 years ago, I started off as a graphic designer uh, but I haven't done that in quite a long time. And now I'm a pastor, but not in an, any meaningful way that will be recognizable outside of this context. And inside of this context, anyone that might want to employ me knows my employers and will be, receive a phone call to tell you that I'm a bad egg not to employ you. So the people who are stuck inside the system who, uh, who have their own issues with it and have their own questions to ask, but end up even in all of their kindness, validating it to other people because of a lack of options. And that's kind of another way that fear plays out in this. Yes, well, thank you for talking so directly about me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there's a lot lot of people in that place. So I can speak to a, a couple of aspects of that, actually, because one of the triggers, and I don't know that we've talked specifically about this before, but one of the triggers, I think, that helped me realize I needed to leave was someone, actually a couple of people in a short space of time coming up to me who had been treated quite badly and had massive questions and were younger than me Mm. saying, oh, I'm struggling so much here and I don't know if I can do it anymore, but you're still here and I trust you. And yeah, and then you're like, oh dear. (laughs) Yeah, that, that very thing you're talking about. And so I think mm-hmm. that one that was one of the things that helped push me over the edge um, to actually yeah. make a, what at the time was a very hard decision. The other thing is probably, you know, that I was one of those people who had, I'd started out in science, I studied biomedical science, I went and worked for a science research company for a while. But while I was still very early in my science career and before mm-hmm. I had any chance to build any real career, mm-hmm. I left it to go and work, you know, for the church. Uh, and now I was seven or eight years down the line going, I can't go back to science. I'm so out of date. Um, and all I've got on my resume is this church. <laughs> um, and yeah, I felt very stuck in that space. Mm. Um, and it was actually a good friend who was able to say to me, because I was expressing this to them, because you feel very stuck and like you don't have options. Mm. In reality, there are always options. Mm-hmm. In reality, you have more capabilities than you're often aware that you do. Yeah. Um, but you feel very stuck and limited. And I, and I said to a mm-hmm. good friend of mine, I was like, if I was to leave, I don't even know what else I would be good for anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, that's just not true. There's lots mm-hmm. of stuff you can do with your life if you want to. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was really helpful to me in that. In and, that and, that, and that friend was me. No, it wasn't actually. No, but no, I, you know, I wish I, I wish I was there to say that. <laughs> Be great to take credit for that sage advice, though. Um, but yeah, but yeah, but there's also the loss of you know, there's also the loss of opportunity because yeah. you know, yeah. you would have been you would have been told numerous times because that's the way that some of the love bombing works in these places. You would have been told so many times that 
you've got such potential. You could really do something in this place. If you stick around and if you're faithful, you know, with another man's vision, you know, you could have your own. And, you know, one day you could really be something. And there's kind of the carrot of being on stage and being part of a brand that other people recognize. Mm -hmm. Like I still remember when I was running <laughs> at a little youth group in Tauranga, people would um, move off to Hillsong and then suddenly they were a part of Hillsong and they would, everyone, they would come back and everyone would be like, wow, you're so amazing. You're part of Hillsong. And they were a, a barista and a life group leader. And like, if you worked in a cafe in Tauranga, like you were a cafe worker, <laughs> but in Australia, you were a barista and you went to Hillsong, like you were really something. And so your personal brand and the opportunity that you might have, the kind of like the constant, dangling of this carrot um, of, you know, like you could, you could really be something you're giving up on, you know, it might be a decade of promises, a decade of attachment to a brand. And then you go, you know, if I leave this place, then what am I mm -hmm. like John from accounting, like a cafe worker, like compared to, you know, and particularly around conference time and things like that, where you get your 15 minutes of pseudo fame um, and, and you are someone to, to envisage a world outside of that, especially when you've been told, you know, and again, narrative <laughs> with these places of, especially when you've been told that the only important thing happening in the world is what we're doing, mm. you know, the only ones changing the world and making a difference and doing stuff is in this place here. Um, if you believe that, then everything else seems kind of crap by contrast. Yeah. I was thinking about um, this week, actually, about the similarities sometimes with that and like someone who might be lost in the gaming world. Like, and mm. I don't just mean loves gaming, mm. but I mean, I remember I had a colleague actually back when I was in science whose partner was lost in the gaming world. And, and a part of the thing was they had become, they had built up this character in the game over years mm. and that character had become incredibly powerful and special and respected um, yeah. in the online world of that game. Mm. And um, he increasingly, did, you know, entered that game and, and left, exited his, his everyday life because in his mm. everyday life, he was just an I, you know, he was just an IT guy. Not meaning to disparage IT people, he just happened to be an IT. But uh, you know, he, you know, he was just an IT guy who wasn't particularly mm. special or known. But in this game, mm. he was incredibly powerful and and, and special. Um, and there is there is and and it just kind of struck me that you know in the end he he kind of got out of it. And mm. you know the the thing about this is I don't think I've talked to anyone who's say left the megachurch world and left their feeling of specialness. Um, who's regretted it, <laughs> you know. Mm, um, yeah. they, they do, they find a freedom and liberation on the other side of that. But mm. it's very alluring and, and not just alluring, it's actually, it's become a part of your, the way you understand your own identity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so here yeah. I matter. Here I, here I am important or I belong. And not even if I'm, an, I'm not even, I don't even have to be important. I just have to be associated with this thing that is important. And that's something that you get told a lot, you know, even if you're just on the door welcoming people, you are, you know, a part of making this what it is. And mm. so, um, 
And so you, you are, your identity has become attached to this thing that matters. And so to, mm-hmm. to detach from that is a, is, a, is a difficult thing for many people to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and even in, in capacity to, like, I, I am deeply suspicious of, uh, I guess, our culture's narrative around individual formation. So, and identity formation of, you know, um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, I kind of like, and the worst of both worlds in some ways of, um, the authenticity <laughs> uh, conversation where I I, I see a, a, a really important place for community speaking into your sense of authenticity and identity and naming what it is you are and taking some of the pressure off you having to create an ideal self for the world to witness. Um, but I am also really deeply suspicious of um, the way that that can fall to coercion within particular environments and mm. that you don't get a say or you don't even learn how to discern what it is that you are as a person. Uh, and I think you need both of those things. I think you need generous, non-coercive community that can help you discover um, what it is that is wonderful and unique and special about you and that can kind of contribute and fit and participate in a communal system. Um, And that allows you enough freedom to be able to help or participate in naming yourself and naming what you are and what your gift is to the world Um, while not being left to kind of invent and kind of PR manage your, your own sense of self. But for people who've been in these systems and have kind of looked up um, in the hierarchical chain for so long to be told what it is you are and why it is that you matter in a way that suppresses any of your own voice, i.e. you are something because you are attached to this and outside of that, you would be nothing. Um, Or I get to tell you what you are and what you aren't. I get to tell you what to be and what to become and no one else does. Um, That... imagining a world outside of that of going like, I don't like the system, but I also don't know what I would be or even how to work out what I would Mm. be on the world outside of Mm. that. Um, That's a really scary, it's a really scary thing. Mm. I think I remember you talking about conversations where, uh, you know, the, the, the term spiritual father was used Mm. and all of that. As your spiritual father, which would precede the. (laughs) Yeah. Speech. Some terrible advice. Some terrible yeah. advice, yes. Yeah. yeah. But that holds a huge amount of weight with someone. Yeah, and, and, and that was what, you know, we would often talk, pe- people generally, you know, in the environment I was in, and I, and I recognized that language, I think, as well in, in, in um, Rachel's story this week, mm. uh, talking about the fog of like, we, we used to talk yeah. about the fog uh, that would come. When you come into the contact of this charismatic um, leader, figure, authoritative figure, spiritual father figure, whatever language they've used to narrate and however direct or indirect they've done that. Mm. Um, you you come into that context 
and and it's it, it was amazing to to witness, and I still hear stories like this all the time of people going into those to have conversations about things that they're concerned about or that they care about, and then they get into that conversation, and suddenly their head turns into a muddle, and it's like they descend into fog, and they find themselves mm. agreeing with everything that's said, and then they come out, you know, going having recommitted for another, you know, nine year period. I'm <laughs> um, going, hang on, what uh, what just happened in there? You know, um, I think and, I got a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, a promotion in inverted commas, I think. Um, mm. and At least in title. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but with quite a bit more to do. Um, <laughs> Responsibility. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, so that, that fog is a very real thing when you're, when you're mm. in the presence of someone who holds power, who has mm. told stories in a way that generates um, directly or indirectly fear yeah. um, of your own belonging and fear of whether or not you are going to matter in the world or not. Uh, and it just becomes it can become incredibly difficult, uh, and so and so one of the things you you see um, in the defence of all of this um, coming out in the way that it has, for example, is people say, well, this is not the biblical way to deal with this kind of thing. You should take this directly to the person concerned, instead of going through a journalist and you know et cetera et cetera. Um, but everybody who's telling these stories knows what it's like to try and go and talk to the person concerned about any of this. If right. the person concerned is not safe, yeah, do not talk to the person concerned. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You do not tell your abusive partner that you're being abused because that's not that's not safe. Yeah, and that's the position that these that a lot of these people have found themselves mm-hmm. in. The dynamics are not safe to be stuck in a room with someone with that much power over you, um, and an entire system to back them up. It is not safe. Yeah. And people have tried and they've seen what's happened to the people who have tried and it's been proven that it's not safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to touch on like the, the how far up the chain this goes and that ironically, the, the fear, I think the fear with, works both ways that the people maintaining and at the top of the system are also paranoid and driven by fear. Because they are in their own community of other people in similar ilks. Like when you look up, when you look at the board structures of a lot of these communities, they made up of, at least initially, other megachurch pastors, yeah. which is why the accountability really doesn't work. Because if you take someone uh, and say, you know, I think the system's not working very well, and they go, well, you should probably push it harder, you know, yeah. um, that's not really going to keep anyone safe. Um, but they're all in competition with each other. Mm. There are the, the the numbers game, you know, uh, at such and such a place we always round up. The num the numbers game is is always active, and the, there's a paranoia about. And we'll talk about this in a probably our next conversation about the endless gro- growth narrative. Yeah, but the paranoia of anything going backwards at any time, of your conference being smaller, of less people committing, of less money being given, of any of those things. That is what drives all of this stuff. And so And those are what the green room conversations basically entail. Yeah. For anyone who's ever been near a green room, if you haven't, count yourself lucky because you know you may still be able to see Jesus. But if you've been in one, you've seen a bunch of other stuff. But the green room conversations are all about, you know, I remember being a youth pastor and people, the first question people asking me in a green room is, what are you running? And they weren't asking about like diesel or LPG. They were asking, 
how many numbers in your youth group. And mm. when that is the narrative, then you will do terrible, terrible things to make sure that those that you get your acclaim and your sense of identity from um, keep looking at you in high esteem. And so yeah. your fear and your paranoia will convince you that pushing people harder and treating them in particular ways is completely okay. Um, so if you're stuck inside one of these systems, just understand that uh, you are the greatest threat to these people because if you stop participating, then that will really cost them something. Yeah, the pressure goes all the way up to the top and past the top out into the network of mm. tops. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so – so um, and, and then that pressure flows down and so you get a, a – I don't know a leader of a of a department who's under pressure to make sure that ninety yep. percent of their leaders turn up to that meeting because otherwise they'll get yep. hauled over the coals by the person above them. Um, yeah, because they're worried that when they're in a green room, someone will have a conversation and say, "So you know, what's your percentages on such and such?" and they'll have an embarrassing answer. And so that pressure mm-hmm. flows all the way down until you end up with a a life group leader pressuring their, you know the 17-year-olds in the room to all make sure they're tithing because otherwise, you know, the the pressure just flows all the way through the system like that. Um, Yeah. And it's fed by fear, really. Um, Fear of not not being enough. Again, like, and again, like again, you can look, you know, just to see that side um, in some ways does a a disservice because it can all be justified by good ends as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like I remember when I was, you know, running a, a youth group for 11 and 12 year olds. And these are kids that we like dearly, dearly loved. And it was growing and, you know, we were caring for them as best as we could. And, you know, we just wanted them to keep being in a safe place. And so all of our leaders every week would ring all of them to make sure they were coming along. Now, at the time, I was almost convinced that was just because we really, really cared about these kids. Mm-hmm. But there was a small part of me that knew that was because people knew we were an 11 and 12-year-old program that had nearly 300 people coming every week. And that was our name. Mm. And so a part of me knew that if we stopped doing that, that maybe we couldn't keep those numbers. And so it's always mixed. Yeah, It's never just yeah. like if all of the stuff was – just insidious and just so easily named as yes. being about terrible things, yes. no one would buy it. Yeah. But there's always legitimization from the inside of genuinely good things of going, we just want to love people. I mean, yeah. you look at yeah, the, yeah. you know, for those who are inside it will know the pressure around giving and the pressure around salvation older calls. And someone from the outside would go, wait a minute, you've just been emotionally manipulated and coerced to put your hand up because you've been threatened with something of infinite despair. Um, that's that's not actually responding to Jesus. And on the inside, you'd go, we just need to do whatever it takes mm. and hit them with the truth. Um, because we love them so much. Because we love them so much. And mm. it's not about the fact that last conference we had 70 people respond and this conference we had we need to have at least 75 to show that we're growing. Like it's about us loving people. So it's not just because we're stupid inside the system. Often it, it takes advantage of our best intentions and the best, it, it distorts the best parts of us. Mm. And that's why it's so successful. Mm. 
Yeah, it's, that's a really that's a really good point because in talking about the the dark side of the system, yeah, you can you mm-hmm. can end up painting a system where it's like, well, it's so obvious no one would ever join that or participate yeah. in it, especially the kinds of people that we know that are a part of these things or or mm-hmm. people as wonderful as us, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's always mixed, but but sort of the worst things usually are <laughs> in some respects, like because. Oh. They wouldn't be able to work without it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So maybe as kind of the last segment of this conversation, and who knows how many of these conversations we're going to have to have to talk about all the things that need to be talked about. Is this therapy for us or for someone else no. now? Hard to tell. Look, it's, we're, we're, we're all benefiting from this, aren't we? Well, I'm not sure everyone is. Maybe not. Some people are, yeah. <laughs> to all the hate listeners out there, we love you. Um <laughs> Now, so as as the last um, segment of this particular conversation, something that's that's fed through a lot of what we've been talking about so far in terms of uh, fear, in terms of the, the the charismatic leader kind of guru figure, the the fog, the uh, the external authority um, figure who essentially is telling you who you are and why you matter. A lot of this relates to to the idea of the honor culture. Um, which is is quite unique in many respects to mm. um, to this kind of church, mm. uh, I think, in the way in which it takes shape, um, but very I mean, it's consistent. Got, it's got par- it's got parallels to cult leaders yep. in all kinds uh, yeah, of ways. Yeah, yeah sure. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's using the same language necessarily. But it's very consistent mm. across pretty much any either mega church or aspiring mega church um, community. This idea of and the within the megachurch hierarchy too, because mm. they all have theirs, their people that they honour, mm. that they would never plant a church in the same city as. Yeah. So let's let's talk a bit about honour just to explain it for people. How would you how would you describe the honour culture? Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> like most things that um you know that work within Christian circles is, is a, a distortion of a biblical idea, uh, and the biblical idea, you know, the Bible talks about honour and you know in the New Testament. A, a, a bunch of ways, uh, but the one that's focused on within an honor culture is the idea that you honor your leaders. And you know, we could get into a you know a long you know exegesis of the stuff, but effectively, it's saying you know lots of these people they're not in paid employment, they're making tents while we're doing this stuff, uh, and the community respects their wisdom. That's why they've kind of allowed them to be in this place. So, a don't let them starve. Take care of them. Um, you know. Give them give them stuff that they need because they're doing this kind of work. Even though Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was massive on not taking advantage of people, was like, you know, I, I don't take anything from anyone, so people can accuse me of doing this because it's a sweet gig. I'll just make my tents and work um, for free. Uh, but yeah, like th- there's a sense in which the community respects these people. These people have some kind of place to you know facilitate the discussion or teach or do whatever those things are. So treat them with dignity and respect and, you know, don't take that too lightly. Uh, but of course, as mentioned way back in episode three, because we, I remember we talked about this, we talked to, you know, maybe a couple of years back. Um, the Bible's got a lot more to say about honor than that. And the greatest honor uh, should be given to the weakest or the seemingly least important parts of the body. Mm. That's that's very clear within scripture that um, it's the dignity of those who have um, 
had their dignity taken from them or who are the most vulnerable that should be given the most honor. Now, that is very explicitly left out of honor culture mm. because honor culture essentially says that um, there, there's God uh, and then there's me. Uh, and again, it's a distortion of a biblical idea. So the Apostle Paul, for those who are not familiar with the Bible, you know, wrote you know a, a good chunk of the New Testament um, and this, these letters to the church called the epistles. And he said the phrase, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, behind that phrase is this idea that you'll actually know what Jesus is like and what Jesus does. <laughs> and that Paul knew what Jesus was like and what Jesus would do. Um, and so again, it's another distortion of this idea. The idea is imitate me as I imitate Christ. You should be able to see Jesus when you look at me in the way that I behave and the way that I treat people. Uh, that wasn't really intended as a carte blanche. Whatever it is that I say and do, that's what God is doing. And so if I'm a bit of a prick, <laughs> you can assume that God is. Um, it's another distortion that's you know close to the truth, but not close enough to actually be anything that resembles the Bible or Jesus. And so it plays out in a bunch of ways, but basically they are the, the senior pastor um, and, you know, almost always a dude. Uh, mm-hmm. It's even interesting in looking on the Arise Alumni Instagram um, account of people saying, you know, like, you know, if, if John Cameron goes, like who should take their place? Even in that bunch of dissidents, it's only men that are suggested. Mm which tells you how indoctrinated we are to the fact that it's straight white men that get the positions and get the places. Mm. But whoever that person is that holds that top dog position, they they are the ones to be imitated in every way. And it's their word that goes. And you do not speak against them to because to speak against them is to speak against God. And, and again, you know, there's these like particular bits of scripture kind of picked out um, that, you know, you, if you have a problem with the brother, you go and see them in private and, and you, and you, you don't talk about it publicly because that would be gossip. But as discussed earlier in this episode, that's, that's not always safe and it's definitely not going to go down well. And so that becomes another form of control that you never speak badly about anyone above you mm. um, unless it's to them and you can't talk to them. So you never speak badly mm. about anyone. And that's just, Absolutely not what Jesus did. Jesus turned, you know, and even in Rachel's story, it was referenced that Jesus turned tables over in the temples. Jesus took on religious authorities and um, called them broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs. That Paul, who a lot of these people are drawing from as kind of the representative of this honor culture, Paul stood up to the apostles who were refusing to hang out with dirty Gentiles and in public told them that they should be ashamed of themselves Mm. because they weren't living up to the gospel. Like when you need to, you need to go public. But within this culture, honor culture will essentially say um, that you never critique the people at the top. And if you do, you do it in private. But what that means is essentially a gag order. Mm. If if you want to see... Um, a petri dish for abuse to grow in. Look for an honor culture because it's almost impossible to not have uh, liberties taken in a place where you're effectively not accountable for your actions. And when their overseers are people who perpetuate exactly the same culture and are on their side, um, when their board members are other mega church pastors, 
who exhibit exactly the, the same behavior and that you're also terrified of and are their friends, who are you going to go to to address this stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking of um, in the Hillsong situation where a particular incident went down in a hotel and one of the people brought in to as external authority mm. slash accountability was brought in to try and get to the truth of the matter was one of the you know senior pastor's best childhood friends also a mega church pastor well you know yeah because that accountability can only ever go apparently up so you can mm. never be accountable to the people below you in any way because what would because what would they know what would they know they don't understand but the people you're accountable to who are kind of above you or your peers are exactly the same as you and yep. uh, yeah, and so I mean, all you need to know about that is to know who's come out in defense of these things, yeah, and called yeah. it an attack on the church. Yes. It's everyone else who's paranoid that their own behavior is going to come back mm-hmm. on them mm-hmm. because they are part of exactly the same system. Now, and then what you see is so this is this honor culture kind of sits sits at, at the base of then a whole lot of behavior that people, especially from the outside, perhaps look at and go, what on earth is going on there? But it it flows from this particular honor culture. So from the honor culture that we're talking about flows the green room, right? Yeah. From that honor culture flows uh, having a driver everywhere that you go, um, having interns doing your gardens and yep. washing your cars and babysitting your children and um, paying for stuff out of their own pockets. Yeah. Um, so um, all of that uh, flows from this idea of honor culture. Yeah. So that when you're standing in line with the volunteers for a meal at a conference and you're all getting dished out your, your sort of cabbage and beans and then the, uh, gray, the caterers, gray walk, gray the caterers walk past the line of volunteers with the giant platters that they're taking to the green room. Of lobster and caviar. <laughs> yeah. You know that's that's all just part of honor culture. We're honoring our leaders. You know, absolutely. Um, and and you and yeah. you will hear people justified and say, "Well, mm-hmm. of course they deserve that." Mm. You know, yeah, they're worth they're worthy of they're worthy of double honor. You know, what's double of cabbage and beans, <laughs> lobster and caviar? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But look, it plays it plays on like all of this stuff um, is is drenched through the entire system, and so. Yeah. It comes down to really, really simple things. I remember watching a Louis Theroux documentary once, and I love, I love, I love Louis Theroux. Uh, and it was on multi-level marketing and um, motivational speakers. And I remember one of, one of the motivational speakers uh, essentially doing his motivational speech and getting people to clap together as a group and getting people to say yes together over and over again. And what happens with that kind of like, which is effectively group hypnosis. Mm. You basically lubricate the system so that people have a, um, so whatever you say after this exercise of great agreeance seems more agreeable. Mm. And you you get people to bypass their rational filter. So if you have a church service where people before the person said the sentence says, come on, that's good. Preach it, brother. Wow, that's amazing. Bring on fire, whatever it is. And you're agreeing as, the, as they are speaking and not thinking about what they are saying. 
the group dynamics of that is whatever they say is correct mm. and good. Mm. And you just need to switch your brain off. Mm. I mean, one of the disturbing conversations, like I had a series of disturbing conversations um, in my in the, my own journey of deconstruction when I started asking questions. And I talked to a few different peers, effectively, people who are other youth pastors and, and, and things, and asked them a couple of questions about, you know, I've been thinking about this thing, I've been thinking about that. And every time I did, I was met with, wow, you really like thinking. I don't. I just like doing. <laughs> <laughs> Which for people who are called ministers, is very very concerning. Yes. Um. But but sums everything up that the people who get elevated are people who are able to eat the most shit and say yes the most, um, because they will be loyal supporters. And yeah, and and it's and it's so that's like what flows down. Yeah. Then imagine you're the person talking, and exactly. every time you go to say something, someone says everybody says that. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. So good. Um, I remember in the early stages of my deconstruction journey, um, going to the library and getting a book of philosophy because I thought I'd never encountered any of this because I only ever read leadership books. And I remember reading this kind of like dummy's guide to philosophy and reading these people from hundreds of years ago going, holy shit, these guys, are they are really smart. Wow, it makes the other stuff that I've been thinking was really smart seem not that smart at all. <laughs> and going, oh, wow, there's this whole other world out there that actually has very nuanced and complex and deep thoughts. And it kind of makes me think that maybe I've been agreeing to a lot of yeah. not that smart things. But being on the yeah, being on the other side of that, we talk again what it does to the followers, but what does it do to the people in yeah. these positions? You can look to the great prophet Kanye, and I just so often think about this Kanye in, his, in, in the early days, and just just think think about Kanye's line of um, "It's hard to be humble when you're strutting on a jumbotron." Yeah, and you're supposed to say, "Wow, sorry, so sorry. good." Yeah, the fire. Wow. Um, that if if you are magnified that much. You are going to begin to believe it. Yeah, you are going to begin to believe that the things that you say, that you came up with while your interns were doing your gardening, was so amazing that thousands of people are saying this is the most incredible stuff I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, and then when you believe that, you begin to believe that you are something special. And I personally think that what happens two leaders in the system, when you, watch, when you watch the ways in which people who are greatly respected fall from grace and the things they end up doing that they will have justified to themselves. I mean, mm. people that you hope so much better of, like Sean Vanier, for, for those of you who don't know him, was a, a man who gave his life to serving poor um, and intellectually disabled people who spoke incredibly beautiful words and after his death and just before his death, it came out that he was taking advantage, sexually taking advantage of women and just going in any system. If you begin to believe that you are that special, you begin to believe that the rules probably shouldn't 
mm. apply to you in the same way. Mm. And I remember reading Crime and Punishment with um, Raskolnikov and this argument of going, you know, I murdered someone, but is it okay? Because as am I a great man? A great man can murder someone and go, it's all right because I'm doing what's good for society and everyone believes them, but it really hinges on whether you're great or not. And so that's think, like, like um, you, that's like Donald Trump getting up in front of people and saying, I could shoot, I could shoot someone in the Fifth Avenue or yes. whatever, and, yes. and my poll ratings wouldn't drop, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and he's right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we believe in a higher judge than poll ratings. And, and yeah, once you get into a place where everyone says that everything you do is right and you are so special and so you're so amazing, no wonder you begin to believe that things that other people would do that would be deemed immoral when you do them, they're okay. Mm. I mean, the righteous anger story that came out in the webworm thing, um, conversations of, you know, it was okay to grab someone by the collar because it's a righteous anger. Right. Yeah. I, I think a good measure of all ministers' behavior, if you're trying to gauge for yourself, is if you put it into the arms of a fashion retail worker and say, if you're working at Just Jeans and you grab someone by the collar because you're not happy with their performance, is that okay? That's a pretty good measure. <laughs> but inside, if you are constantly told that everything you do is great, that if you want to be like Jesus, be like me, WWJD, I mean, I remember one of your stories from a staff meeting saying, you know, if you want to know what to dress, how to dress. Dress like me. That's right. That's, yeah. It's not just WWJD. It's, um, it's WWMED. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, that was, li- you know, literally, literally said to us. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, and, and perhaps this is something that's sometimes missed. Sometimes the assumption from people in their analysis of this is that, um, narcissistic, terrible people start these kinds of churches explicitly to extort money from people so that they might Mm. live lavish lifestyles. And that's not very often the case. Very rarely the case. What often happens is these people start out with, well, look, a complex set of things going on, Mm. enter into these systems uh, without much... Um, thought without much theology, without much insight, but with great charisma, and work their way up the system, and then come to be treated in a way that that leads to exactly what you're talking about. So you go up on stage, and everybody says, "Wow, wow, wow! Most amazing thing I've ever heard." You then walk yeah. off stage, go out the door, uh, up into your green room where people bring you platters of food uh, and tell you how amazing you are. You then leave your and you green get to room. hang around with very important other very important people. Yeah. Who also make you feel special. That's right. Uh, and, you know, you see in some of the Hillsong stories that extends and extends and those important people become end up becoming celebrities and, you know, athletes mm. and um, mm. whatever, music stars. Um, you, then, you then leave the green room and you walk out and someone opens your car door for you, you get into the back and then you are driven to, to your house or if you're away at a conference, you're driven to a five-star hotel and you walk into the room at your five-star hotel, there's a giant basket of high-end foods and drinks uh, that have been placed there for you. You then stay there um, and then are picked up 
you know, the next morning by said driver who's been waiting outside at 4am just in case you decided you might want to leave a bit early or something. Uh, and on not, and that's the way you live your life. Um, mm. And everywhere you go, no one is allowed to dishonor you or to disagree with you. Um, yes. There might be some what they call robust discussions that happen at some place in leadership, but I've been in some of those robust discussions and I've also been in the room when said leader leaves those robust discussions and then everyone turns around and literally says to each other, well, what we, okay, what are we going to do now then? <laughs> you know, mm. um, mm. oh, that didn't go the way we yeah. hoped. Um, yeah. You know, so, so just, oh, just how bad. People who, bought, people who bought the robust discussions then return uh, having been blacklisted, marginalized and bad-mouthed yeah. and yeah, yeah. repent for saying something so terrible That's to the right. person as the truth. And humbly wash their feet for it. So, yeah. Yes. So it's just so, so deeply awful for your psyche to be treated that way. And mm-hmm. especially so as someone yeah. who is a minister in a church. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, this does, it's, it's not the only thing going on here, but it is a big component of what is going on in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can we can we just maybe just for the sake of people who are still interested in the Bible, both of you, um, <laughs> the the just how counter this is to the New Testament vision of the church, mm. where everyone is a gift, where if you if you make room for a rich person at the front at the expense of someone who has no resources then the fires of hell are after you because that is not the vision of the church, that everybody matters, that no one holds, um, that whatever your esteem is in the world outside holds no bearing to how you are valued and cared for and for what your contribution is and your right to speak and your capacity to add wisdom to the conversation that, At the center of all of this, there's such a radical equality that you you couldn't dare believe you are that special in the midst of true Christian community. And that's what makes me sad and grieves me about this whole thing is that all, all up and down the system, everyone has been robbed of these gifts. And that goes for the leaders of these systems too because they don't get to bring their authentic selves. They don't get to bring their best selves. They don't get to learn from someone else from another walk of life. They don't get to learn from someone who has a disability or from a different social class or from a different life experience. They don't get to hear that the Bible can be used as a weapon that traumatizes they don't, they don't get to learn. They don't get to find Jesus in the prisoner and the sick. And that's what really grieves me about this whole thing. Not just that people are being taken advantage of, but that in the name of this community that started out in its best forms, and there's never been ideal forms of it. They've all been pretty messed up, but there's an ideal in the center of it that, somehow it will be a place of genuine equality and care and a place where you couldn't begin to believe that you were God. 
<laughs> because everyone thought you were so amazing. Because you had to share and recognize that divinity in everybody else too. Yeah, I think that's actually a beautiful place to finish for today. So I think we'll we'll hold ourselves there and we're going to come back again and talk about some more uh, of what's going on perhaps uh, in the next conversation as to what might, some, some more of those things that give rise to some of what we see, excuse the pun. Uh, and so uh, please do join us then if you're finding these conversations helpful. So there you have it. That was part two of the conversation with Shane um, about all that's going on at the moment in relation to to the mega churches and the kind of the reckoning, I think, the public reckoning that we're having, and the and, and the need to have these these conversations in public spaces. Uh, so thanks, as always, to Reese Michelle for his uh, massaging of this audiological signal into your ears. Until next time. <laughs>